This morning we have each been blessed, as we mentioned earlier, not only in the announcements, but in our prayer as well. We've been blessed with the privilege of assembling this morning, and for that we can be so thankful that God has showered upon us the opportunity and lavished us in the way described in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 10. And so, as we come to this part of our worship, having collectively prayed and sung these beautiful hymns of adoration and praise, and also these hymns have encouraged us, let us give just a few moments thought to the third part in this series of lessons that we began some two weeks ago, dealing with the devil. We, to this point, have discussed some of the aspects and natures of him. In fact, one of the first matters that we convinced ourselves of is his existence, seen on so many occasions in the Word of God. We furthermore learned about his origin, where he came from, and we then invested a fair amount of time noting the opposition that he portrays to God in everything from life to love to goodness. And in all of those matters and in all of those ways, he is the arch enemy of God and the enemy of both you and me. To say all of that is to say then what a ferocious opponent we have. We are so in need then of being wise in our approach toward him being ever careful because He is subtle and He is clever. Last Lord's Day, in particular, we laid emphasis upon the method of attack He uses to approach you and me. It is with the excitation of our lusts that produce sin, which in turn leads to death. All of that comes about through temptation. We each know well about that, at least as we reflect and think about it. And so I thought it would be worthwhile to devote an entire lesson to how do you and I deal with it? What are some things the Scriptures can tell us? Practical, down-to-earth, easy-to-appreciate matters that you and I can use to help keep the devil at bay, to deal with the temptations that he brings our way. And so that'll be the topic to which we'll turn our attention this morning, dealing with temptation. As we look at a few of the verses then in the Bible, I hope that you'll take note that some of these will occur in the New Testament and some in the Old. But as we look at them, the way in which the devil is described and our approach to him should well begin in the following arrangement. A very short verse in Ephesians 4 verse 27. We'll use that as our first outline, our first plank in a method of attack toward the temptations of the devil. Neither give place to the devil. A very simple verse, a very straightforward thought, but yet how profound in its approach and how great is its methodology. Neither give place to the devil. I've asked that we take note of what literally, as well as figuratively, those words mean in that verse. In fact, you'll appreciate that that phrase, give place, literally means to give no territory. In a figurative or metaphorical fashion, it means to give no chance, occasion, or opportunity. To state then the thought of that passage in another way, it might well take on this phrase, make no room for the devil to operate. One of the first things then that can be a useful means for your life and mine in terms of keeping temptation at a distance is to give the devil no room to operate. Don't give him an inch because he will take a mile and then some. I would ask that we look at a few passages to help challenge us about the character of our life and making sure that we give the devil no place. 
In fact, might we will begin by affirming that sets before all of us the impressive duty of living a life of holiness and a life of purity. We shouldn't have those hidden things that no one else we think knows about that really are not pure. Perhaps in the dark of an evening or on other occasions when we're by ourselves, do we engage in thoughts or activities that we know are not right? May we say if that's the case, we're giving place to the devil. We are making a guest room in our lives for him and he will set up shop there and stay as long as we'll let him stay. Give no place to the devil. In fact, look at a few of these passages that challenge us ever so grandly. There's a tremendous harmony between Psalm 15 as well as Psalm 24. In particular, note with me Psalm 24 beginning in verse 3. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in His holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And he who hath not given his soul over to vanity. Doesn't that challenge each of us? Now he's not meaning literally those who wash their hands all the time. He means that life of openness, respectfulness, approvedness, honesty and forthrightness who exhibits holiness and purity in the things he says and does. That kind of person is the one that will ascend under the hill of God and be able to enjoy all the righteousness and blessings, Psalm 24, 5, that God will make available to that person. In addition to that passage, we notice in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is they who will be blessed with that tremendous opportunity to see the goodness and to in fact dwell with God forevermore. A pure heart? How about your heart and mine? For a heart that's pure will be the first thing to keep the devil's temptations at a distance. Even beyond that passage in Titus 2 verses 11 and 12, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Might we each ask the question, do those three adverbs characterize your life? To those who are knowledgeable of what the words mean, would they say that your life is of soberness, godliness, and honesty? If it is, then you already are working hard to make no room for the devil. May we each thus strive toward that end and in that way. Two of the highest complementary passages in all the Old Testament it would seem would be these two. We read in Genesis about two individuals who it is said walked with God. In fact, as you think of a, both Noah and the character listed of Enoch, isn't it amazing that inasmuch as they walked with God, they lived very differently than the others in that world and on that occasion in time. In fact, we well remember the flood of Noah's day as it engulfed the earth, there were but eight souls saved upon that ark, and Noah was the patriarch of the family. That man was a just man, and he walked with God. Do you and I walk with God? Are we excited and happy to be able to have Him at our side? Or do we, in fact, say things that we know He wouldn't approve? Think things that we know would be, in fact, disallowed by Him. Do we, in fact, visit places 
that would not be happy toward his viewpoint. It is a sobering reflection. If you and I walk with God, we know the devil's not going to be anywhere close by. Because after all, he and God are enemies and God will not tolerate presence of him in, in the vicinity. Isn't it amazing? As we think of giving no place to the devil, may we proceed even further and challenge ourselves in these verses. In the last verse of Psalm 19, we read about a guide, guiding thought and a guiding point to the way in which you and I can make our life sufficiently whole and pure and honest that the devil will in fact not be that which has a place. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. If it is the case every moment of every day that the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart are to be acceptable with Him, that will keep all ungodliness out. If you and I can live that way, and we strive to live that way, then the devil will not have a guest room in our lives. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thought, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The earnest and sincere plea of the psalmist who understood his own failures and his own possibilities of error, pleading with God, search me and help me remove all of those matters of evil. May our wish also today be similar. As you look at some of the other matters found on that slide, one of the first things that you and I can do to make a place for the devil is to be idle. That is to say, one of the first things that will allow a four-lane highway into our life is to be idle. Because then that makes it so easy for the devil. After all, isn't it often on those occasions when we should be doing something and we aren't, that that's when the devil can enter with impurity of thought, with character of laziness, with other things that really should be done but are not? And didn't James remind us that to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4, verse 17. So may we not allow idleness to be our downfall. May we, in fact, strive to follow some of the attributes of these verses. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse number 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. That passage of encouragement toward our labors and efforts for the cause of God challenges us also to appreciate 1 Timothy 5 verse 13. This is a passage that is housed in that discussion of the widows of that first century era, but the passage itself is ever so telling. In it we learn what idleness can do. Paul wrote, And withal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, we already note something. These who had learned to be idle now wandered about from house to house. And not only were they idle, Paul wrote, they're busybodies and tattlers, speaking things that they ought not. Did you know idleness was the start of their downfall? In that idleness, they came to be busybodies, mattering in other people's matters. And they were speaking things that they had no business speaking. They were meddling in other people's matters. In fact, they ought not have been doing so. 
and it all began with idleness. Today, each of us perhaps is aware of what dangers can come with idleness, and thus may we be busy utilizing our talents and abilities in the service of God and our families and in the service, of course, of the church. There you can also notice that example of Ananias and Sapphira, how that they help us see what not to do. If our lesson to this point has been give no place to the devil, look at the approach that they took. They concocted an idea that involved lying about the amount they were giving in Acts 5 beginning in verse 1. At any point along the line, they could have chosen to in fact not follow this scheme that was so evil. However, they made room for the devil. They followed right along with it all the way until it cost them their lives. For even when Peter questioned them about it, they still didn't admit what they were doing. Do we notice they were giving place to the devil? As you and I in wisdom strive not to do those things, there are many approaches the devil can make to us. Through the media, of radio or television, magazine articles and otherwise in which He can bring into our lives impurity. It's up to us individually to keep those things at bay and give no place to the devil. But this isn't the only advice the Bible gives us about overcoming temptation. First thing, give no place to the devil, but let us look even further. Another tactic that can also be useful and is sometimes necessary is this matter of fleeing from Him. After all, there are occasions and times when we perceive the devil has made inroads. In our attempt to keep him at a distance or give no place to him, that has been unsuccessful. He has now advanced into our life and there is the perception of temptation. Once we've realized that perception, now what do we do? Next piece of advice, flee from the devil. Flee from him. And let's in fact use some passages and ideas to prompt us toward a fuller understanding of that idea in that way. First of all, consider some of these verses. In 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Young people, perhaps Paul directly would <clears throat> ask that you take note of that. But for each of us to appreciate fully and thoroughly that the verb used is flee. Do not try to engage the devil because he will win. The better course of advice and the better piece of wisdom flee from him. Even beyond that passage, notice with me in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee fornication. To that congregation on that time, Paul advised them, flee this sin. It was something that was apparently giving them a great deal of temptation. And Paul said, don't try to do battle with him. You flee this. We furthermore notice in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, to flee idolatry. You'll notice again that the word is very specially chosen. F-L-E-E, flee these things. And in 1 Timothy 6, verses 4 through 11, a rather lengthy discussion about fleeing a whole host of evil things and evil influences so that they will not lead you into sin. May we remember again, the whole matter of the devil as he puts these temptations before us is that they will lead us into sin. Temptation by itself is not the same thing as sin. 
The temptation is before us and we still have the option to give in to it or to flee from it. May we in wisdom choose the course to flee from the devil. As you notice some of the things that follow on this slide, I've tried to point us to what the word flee indicates. It means to run. It means in haste to avoid and to distance oneself from the situation. As we have noted on so many occasions, the devil is a powerful enemy. If we come within the confines of his grasp, if we come within the capability of his arriving toward us, then we put ourselves in grave danger spiritually. Flee from him. As you discuss that matter of fleeing, might we give some thought to the matter in King David's life? I would advise each of us to think about some of the things that took place along the course of the episode of David's committing adultery. Recorded for us in 2 Samuel 11, it started with such a seemingly innocent set of circumstances. The troops were off at war. David was seemingly enjoying a time of respite and peace in the castle, and he walked upon the castle roof. Perhaps something he had done many, many times before. However, on this occasion, there was a woman. She was bathing. She was washing herself. Apparently, it would also be expected to done many, many times before. But this time, it happened to be that the same time he was on the roof, she was washing herself. And given the height of the roof of the castle and the palace, he was able to see her. Immediately, what should he have done? The text informs us she was a beautiful woman. The text informs us that she was, in fact, a very lovely lady. David should have gone back in the house. He should have turned his head. He should not have continued on this that would lead ultimately to it, but he didn't flee. In fact, the Hebrew verbs indicate the following. He continued to look. The tense of the verb indicates he didn't just look once. He continued to gaze, to look. And of course, with that taking place, thoughts could now be brought into his mind. Unwholesome thoughts, sinful thoughts, inappropriate thoughts, because she was the wife of another man. As we give thought to all of that, he continued to look. And what's more, it didn't stop there. He inquired, who is that woman? And he had her brought to the palace. And of course they committed adultery. As David proceeded on that way, he didn't flee. In fact, he threw the doors of his heart wide open and invited the devil to make his home with him. Isn't it true today that in parallel, sometimes we can do the same? A circumstance arises and the better course of valor is to flee from it to remove oneself from that circumstance as quickly as possible. And yet we stay. We think we can reason with it. We think we can deal with it. And all the while we just lead ourselves deeper and deeper into trouble. Flee from the devil. This piece of advice that we have seen here only brings us to that bottom. And it's a challenging set of questions. Do you and I flee from Him as we should? Or are we too comfortable, it would seem, and we allow the opportunity for Him to make His residence with us as if we're happy with that arrangement? These thoughts are rather good ones. 
As we've noted in the last lesson, each individual is different. What things may be temptation to one may be no temptation to another. Each of us in our uniqueness in that regard should seriously ask the question, am I fleeing from the devil when those temptations are before me and when I perceive that they're there? At this point, two pieces of advice we've studied. Give no place to the devil, Ephesians 4.27, and flee from him in the language of 2 Timothy 2.22. As we look to yet a third piece of advice, there is an element of discussion that needs to precede it. This discussion takes us again to one of the characteristics of the devil. I've entitled it, Warnings About Him. So far, if our discussion has been to flee from Him, it would perhaps be wise to ask about the character of how to identify these circumstances that we should flee from. That makes it somewhat difficult because of the following piece of advice. You see, Satan is subtle. He's clever. He disguises the ultimate end of what he presents before you. What looks so wholesome sometimes and so attractive will ultimately lead to that which is awful and lead to that which is in fact sinful. Didn't Paul himself say in 2 Corinthians, particularly the fact that he himself is able to be transformed into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. That means though he himself is enemy... He Himself is completely against us. He can give the appearance of being an angel of light. Someone who brings good news. When all the while He's sinister, He is in fact the one who is diabolical. He is the one who desires your downfall and mine. He can cover His tracks. But might we take note carefully about these matters. Inasmuch as He is able to appear in this way, might we take careful note that this is why we must be ever on guard. Because again, He won't shoot straight with you. He won't tell you openly what He's up to. He'll wait until you're already in it, and then you'll realize it. Thus, as we strive to flee from Him, as we give no place to Him, might we even note one of the degrees to which His subtlety is highlighted for us is the very way He tempted the Savior in Matthew chapter 4. Believe it or not, he even used Scripture as one of the methods of his temptation. He quoted from Psalm 91 and urged Jesus, Cast yourself off the, temple, the pinnacle of the temple. In fact, the Scripture says that God will bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Here was a case when even the devil knew Scripture and quoted it. But of course he misapplied it. He misinterpreted it. He misused it. And today there are multitudes who in fact are in the same position. Jesus, of course, correctly used the Scripture. He quoted from another Old Testament passage and stated, The devil, you are wrong. You must not tempt the Lord your God. Quoting from Deuteronomy 8. Might you and I notice then and never allow the devil to bring into our mind a usage of some verse. That is an improper interpretation, that is a misinterpretation, and use it to change some aspect of our life. Not only is that not a good thing, it's devilish and it's sinful. But inasmuch as we take note of that, one of the key elements in the devil's attack, 
as he approaches the issue of temptation is his keen ability to use human arrogance and pride. The matter of self-reliance, that often was the case in the Bible, wasn't it? Look at just a few of these verses with me. In 1 Chronicles 21, beginning in verse 1, when David numbered Israel, how did that come about? The text says, Satan stood up and caused David to number Israel. Satan was behind that. He was the one who prompted David to start relying on his own troops. So David had the troops numbered. How many troops do I have in my army? How many particular individuals can I send to war? Rather than relying on God, David was relying on the number of his troops. Satan was behind that. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7, we learn that warning again concerning elders and the principle that it should teach all of us, not a novice, lest he be lifted up by his own pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Just as surely as the devil once lifted himself up in pride and in rebellion toward God, and God cast him out of heaven, so too elders must be very careful. They are those who are given the eldership of the flock, and they have a grave responsibility, but they ought not to be high-minded. They ought not to, in fact, dwell in pridefulness and arrogance. And so too none of us, as members of the kingdom of God, should also dwell in that way. Because when one dwells in self-reliance and pride, that is again an easy way for the devil to bring things into our life and temptations that otherwise simply would not be. One last thought about these warnings concerning the devil. A particular statement that is of tremendous comfort. As powerful as the devil is, you and I are given the absolute assurance that there is no temptation that will ever come our way that is stronger than we are able to overcome. 1, Timothy, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 reads it like this, God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able? But also with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We are thus assured and guaranteed that no matter what the temptation is and no matter the seeming strength of it, there is a means of escape. We must thus be dutiful to find it, to in fact be earnest in our desire to locate that way of escape and to pursue it at once. With these statements and warnings in place, one final piece of advice that the Bible gives us in our attack upon the devil's temptations. Give no place to the devil was number one. Flee from the devil was number two. From James 4 verse 7, the lesson text that Brother Cale read before us earlier today. Thirdly, resist the devil. Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This issue of resistance, what does that involve and what might be the case in which it would be the appropriate thing? May we state it like this. There are times when, perhaps despite our efforts, to give no place to the devil, he makes an inroad into our life. Furthermore, perhaps fleeing from him is no longer an option. Maybe he has advanced to the point that he's here. The temptation is right now on me. Maybe you've been there at some time in your life. Maybe again, just as it was with David, it started so innocently. 
and suddenly you find yourself in an arrangement, a circle of friends who are now doing something, and you know that it's wrong. And you know that it is not going to lead to anything good, but now how do I get out of this? It's too late to flee. What can I do? Resist the devil. There are times when open combat against him would seem to be the only way out. It takes a great deal of courage to be sure. And it takes a tremendous degree of fortitude. And it takes the right armament. Look at some of the things that we'll use upon this particular slide. That word resist, it means to oppose. It means to stand firmly against. It means to take a firm stand against. What about the firmness of your stand in mind relative to these temptations of the devil? Is it firm or is it wishy-washy? Is it nebulous and vague? We need, before the temptation comes, to be certain in mind that a certain thing is wrong and that we will have no part in it. It might be fair to also note, in terms of some of the bottom things, that Paul addressed this in more detail in Ephesians 6, didn't he? On that occasion, beginning in verse 10, he admonished the Ephesian brethren so carefully and yet so directly having done all to stand against the wiles of the devil. To stand. That word in Greek means to withstand. And it means to be able to maintain one's fortitude. How able are you and I to stand against his attacks? Is he an easy target? Is he one, are you and I one that in fact is easy for him to overcome? You'll notice that on that occasion Paul begins to mention a number of parts of the Christian's armor. And I have quickly just tried to list all of those things that Paul does. We have not the time this morning to give a great deal of emphasis to each one of them. But you'll notice that they involve the following. Having loins girt about with truth. If we have the truth as a bedrock and powerful part of our lives, it's going to make things more difficult for the devil. Furthermore, the appreciation of the breastplate of righteousness, right, wholesome, godly living, is that characteristic of you and me? Furthermore, the matter of having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Do our feet take us along the pathways that Jesus trod? Do our feet take us along the things that Jesus would prove? Beyond the matter of having our feet appropriately shod, there is that shield of faith to ward off those fiery darts that the devil is able to cast. Do we have that shield in place as a tremendous weapon to in fact deflect those temptations? Even beyond that matter of the shield of faith, it is to be noted that Paul continues along the line like this. The helmet of salvation. The helmet, of course, protects the head. Do you and I have that armament that protects our thinking, our brains working, if you please, so that it's rightly guarded toward the pathway of salvation? Even beyond those, there's the sword of the Spirit, which is, of course, the Word of God. A thorough knowledge of this book. An appreciation so that Satan can't fool us and beguile us and use text of the Bible and in fact misquote them and misinterpret them to us. We know more about the Word of God than that. Even beyond that, there is, of course, the element of prayer. Praying always. 
You see, one of the things that sometimes is our fault is we don't pray often enough relative to the strength we need to overcome temptation. How was it that Jesus closed that model prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13? Wasn't it true that as He reached the end of it, He said, "...lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forevermore. Amen." Lead us not into temptation. Do we pray along those lines to God? God today, help me have eyes open that I may see the temptations of the devil and that I may have the strength and the fortitude by virtue of Thy Word to overcome them. That would be a completely appropriate prayer, wouldn't it? As you come near the close of that slide, you'll notice that there are many things about this resisting the devil that might be asserted. We can think about how that Judas was an example in that he did not resist the devil. We learn in Luke 22, 3, the Satan came right into his life. And of course, he betrayed the Master. As you and I think about this issue, resisting the devil, let's ask some more pertinent questions about ourselves. When that collection tray is passed each Sunday morning, there's that temptation. Throw in a dollar. That's good enough. Is it really? God says that we're to give as we've been prospered, but the devil doesn't want you to give as you've been prospered. He knows that if you just give a small amount, that your attachment to the Lord's work will be a small amount, and that you'll feel no identity with the Lord's body. Well, what about the matter of attendance? So easy. My favorite golf game is on. My favorite football game is on, so I'll just not go tonight. Oh, I've had a hard day at work. It's Wednesday night. I'll be all right till Sunday. Easy to think that way, isn't it? That's the temptation of the devil. It's time to resist him. It's time to say, no, I'll be there because my Lord expects me there. And I want to be there. And that's where my spiritual nourishment comes. Do we each know that those decisions are left to us? As we draw this lesson to its conclusion... These three methods that we've discussed give the, give the devil no place. Flee from him and resist him. As we think about all of those today, it may be that there's one or more in the audience that is in need of a public response. Maybe the devil has had you far too long. Maybe you've never become a member of the Lord's body. At this point, the devil is no doubt trying to make a very strong case in your mind. He doesn't want you to walk down this aisle. He doesn't want you to confess the name of Christ. He doesn't want you to have your sins forgiven because He'll lose you as a member of His army. He wants you to stay just the way you are. And He'll present every line of reasoning He can think of. Wait until Wednesday night. Wait until next Sunday. Don't let Him win that argument. Flee from Him. Resist that temptation. And if you need to come forward... For that reason, why not do it today? If you've been a faithful member of the body of Christ and you know that there are public sins in your life and others know about these, also you have a decision you're now about to make. You can come down this aisle and in a desire of humility and love for prayers of brethren, you can be forgiven or you can stay in the position you now are. You can let this song be sung you can let the rest of the services proceed. The decision is yours. God won't force you to come. 
but you need to resist the devil. You need to flee from him. And if we can assist you today in doing either of these public responses, why not let that be known? While together we stand and while we sing.